Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 108, the Boeing Starliner. I'm Dan Hewitt, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, and leaders to tell you all the coolest parts about NASA. We're close to launching astronauts from American soil with two different vehicles developed by two different companies, Boeing and SpaceX. It's all part of the Commercial Crew Program, designed to enable the capability of launching people into space by private businesses. Today, we're going to highlight one of those vehicles, the Boeing Starliner. In the studio, we brought in Tony Castilleja and Selena Dopart. Tony and Selena are engineers with Boeing responsible for getting the spacecraft and the crew ready for these first missions. We talk about the vehicle itself, all of the testing and all the training happening, and what we're going to be looking forward to in the very near future. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Tony and Selena. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. All right, I have Tony and Selena from Boeing with me today. Thank you guys so much for taking a little bit of your day to join me today. This is this is an exciting time. We got a new spacecraft coming, right? Oh, absolutely. It's the best time to work in aerospace. We're happy to be here. We're training our astronauts today. Excited to be here today. All right. Very excited to make time for this. All right, so we're here to talk about the Starliner, the CST-100 Starliner. So first off, paint me a word picture. What does this thing look like? If you needed to describe this to somebody like, this is what you're going to see, how would you do that? Yeah. We're building a spaceship. We're building a spaceship today for the next generation of human space flight. Since the end of the space shuttle, NASA has uh, contracted with Boeing to build the Boeing Starliner. It's a capsule design that will launch up to five astronauts in its initial configurations to the International Space Station. Um, and although it looks like a capsule that most Americans and most people around the world have looked at for generations, it's a next generation spacecraft for a next generation mission. And some of the differences um, between, for example, our vehicle and Apollo, say, uh, it's a little bit bigger. Um, we've got a little bit more room. If you look at it, and if you've, if you've seen Orion, if you've seen Apollo, um, you kind of get the idea of what a capsule looks like. Uh, our vehicle is, is similar, but it's got some unique differences. So if we go in the interior of our vehicle, um, it's more spacious. It's certainly not, um, let's say glamping it's more camping um there's <laughs> still tight quarters still space still flight, tight, it's still quarters, tight quarters for sure but um and when when we get up to four crew members in it um it's it's definitely shared space but there's enough room for them to do all the activities that they have to do um and we've got all the support that's needed on the interior to help them get to station so something i've heard several times and we've heard this with the orion spacecraft and i'm sure you guys hear this with the starliner is it's that capsule shape it's that really iconic kind of triangular shape why do so many spacecraft look like that it's physics it goes back to the aerodynamics and the fundamentals of aerodynamics to provide the most efficient design 
Um, the best return L over D, or lift over drag, as you come back through the atmosphere, in this case for our spacecraft, for a land landing. It will be one of the first uh, human-rated orbital space vehicles to be able to do that. And so when we looked at the math and the science and the physics of flight, that capsule design created the most economical, the safest, and the most uh, reusable capability uh, for our engineers to get ready for that flight. And you, you look at the design of spacecraft in the past, um, there's really two kinds. There's space planes and then there's space capsules. Um, and so it was always going to be one of those two. Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, just make it better. And that's what we've done with the capsule design we have. So let's get into the better. What's some of the, I mean, technology's come so far since Apollo mm -hmm. and everything. What are some of the cool new gadgets? What are there some of the nice things if they're glamping? You know, yeah, is, yeah. There's, there's not like a 60 inch TV in there, but you know, what are some of the nicer things that the astronauts are gonna have access to on these new missions? So one of the biggest differences is pretty, pretty striking when you first go into our vehicle, if you're familiar with say shuttle or Apollo, um, there's a lot less inside in terms of switches hmm. and buttons and controls. Um, we've, I, I know there are um, the shuttle cockpit um, mock-ups on site. So if any of our listeners have ever um, seen them on site, there are switches and buttons uh, with on every surface within reach of the commander and the pilot. Which, like, 12-year-old me inside of those would have been so, like, there's buttons everywhere. I know. Buttons, 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 and switches, and, it like, is they're fun so to satisfying. Play with. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to play with. Um, it's a lot harder to control when there's that many things to interact with. Um, so with the technology that's come a really long way, we've been able to simplify that a lot. So... Um, I, I don't know the numbers exactly, but we we have greatly reduced the number of buttons and switches that a crew has to interact with. Um, we still have displays that give a lot of information, all the information necessary for a crew member to make informed decisions and know what's going on um, on their mission. But there's there's a lot less for them to have to do and have to do in an emergency or contingency situation. So we've really streamlined the operations, and that's one of the big differences. And as you look and you walk into the si inside to our Boeing mock-up trainer, which is actually here at Johnson Space Center, if you ever come by Building 9, you'll see our Boeing trainer there. Um, you walk in, and it's a much uh, cleaner design, if you will, and it allows for more cargo uh, mm. capability as well as the crew capability to space station. And that's that miniaturization of technology that we've experienced over the la since last time you know we built the space capsule um, but also uh, we've integrated the capability uh, in our new spacesuit to be able to start interacting with touchscreens and so we'll have uh, tablets that our astronauts can use for electronic flight logs mm -hmm. on their mission and so you're starting to see that capability start to continue to make progress in these these brand new space vehicles and so um, we want to make it sure it's right and it's safe for our uh, astronauts in terms of tactile feedback, in terms of the uh, switches that we have in the vehicle, which are optimized to go from autonomy to human driving, if you will, mm -hmm. and then back to autonomy, but then give the ability to continue to bring that innovation to the forefront. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned cargo. Let's just kind of get into the stuff real quick. So how much stuff is this capsule going to be bringing? And I mean, include the people and the cargo, because mm -hmm. it sounds like there's going to be room for both. Yep, absolutely. So um, then 
all of this is defined by the NASA requirements that they give us. Um, so spa SpaceX is designing to the same requirements that we are. Um, and so if, if you're interested in the specifics, you can look at the 1130 requirements, which are just available online. Um, but our, our volumetric, uh, what we have to carry in terms of um, cargo for NASA is defined by that. I don't know the number off the top of my head. Um, but we also have to have the capability to carry zero to four crew members. Um, so going back to what Tony was saying about autonomous versus not autonomous, um, we have to have the capability to fly zero people on our capsule and our, our first test flight is uncrewed, so we, we really have to demonstrate that. Um, but then we also have to um, be able to carry four crew members. Uh, so that's gonna be sort of the nominal mission once we get operational. We plan to carry four crew members and a full complement of cargo. Um, so, so that's where I go back to, it's kind of camping. Um, there, there's not a ton of space for um, hanging out and having fun. We don't have the 60 inch TV screen, um, but, but they, there are windows in the vehicle and while we're waiting to get to station, there's, there's plenty of things that they'll um, be doing to take up their time. So what else is kind of inside the capsule? So I'm assuming there's some seats. Yeah. There's <laughs> some buttons, not as many buttons as there used to be, but there's some buttons, some screens. Yep. What What are some of the kind of the other accoutrement, the other facilities mm -hmm. for the crew members inside? Yeah, so as you walk into the spacecraft, you'll see um, the ability for us to land in water in case of an uh, anomalous scenario, but we're baseline land, so you'll see the life raft in there as you come in. You'll see a row of three seats on the top row uh, with the furthest most seat as you walk into the spacecraft as if you were on the launch pad being the, the main commander and pilot of the vehicle. And as you look over to the right, you'll see uh, two seats on the lower row, if you will, um, kind of in between seat one and two, and then in between seat two and seat three on that mm -hmm. top row. So you get kind of this, uh, you know, almost like a dice uh, view from the top in terms of the five crew. Kind of staggered. Kind of staggered, okay. and it goes back to CG. It goes back to basic, you know, aerospace, basic physics. CG. Uh, center of gravity, center of mass. So um, to all those uh, up-and-comers, it goes back to that basic aerospace and physics. And, and so... I'll, let me jump in for a second. Yeah. You said five crew members, and we just talked about four. So we do have a fifth seat, yeah. mm. uh, which we don't plan to utilize for our nominal NASA missions. Um, that fifth seat will be swapped out to be able to carry a little more cargo with a cargo pallet. Um, but Tony is absolutely right. We could, if we um, if we ever had the desire, or another customer, uh, take five crew members out oh. at a time. Exactly. So as you walk in, you'll see this white um, uh, white walls, if you will, and the cargo on the left and right of you on each side. And uh, when you think about th where we put the switches and dials, it's all about sitting in the pilot seat and imagining yourself. Um, the amount of time you need to go reach a dial. Pretend that you're in your car, your Lexus, your Audi, and y you gotta move the, 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 the seat in order to reach a certain button or dial. We did that with the seat um, and the reach and visibility of where the switches are. So the most important ones, caution and warning panels, things of that sort are very close to, your, to where your uh, line of sight mm -hmm. is. And then something like the temperature of your cabin is off to the left. And so where we put the switches and where we put the dials are really uh, focused on the crew member for those safety scenarios uh, in case of the autonomy takeover of the human. Um, but again, less number of switches, the consoles in front of seat one and seat two on that top row, seat three, four, and five, you have a lot more, uh, if you say, looking around room, if you will, in mm -hmm. our spacecraft. It's, it's uh, just real quick, it's kind of crazy. You don't always think about the level of detail that goes into to, to design for these kind of things, but even something as simple as that, like, 
which makes perfect sense when you hear it, yeah, the switches or the indicators that there's an emergency should be really close to right up front. Mm -hmm. And the lessons, the important stuff off to the side. And I almost feel like, has that level of detail gone into everything when you're designing this yeah. kind of so stuff? especially for what Tony is talking about right now with the displays and the console and where things are laid out, um, it all comes down to good systems integration and human factors engineering. So I'm giving my plug for that because I'm a human factors engineer. Um, but it, it really is, besides designing the systems and really strong, solid, robust systems, you need to make sure that they're designed for the end user. And our end user is an astronaut, and we need to take into account all the other crew accommodations that go into the equation. The suits and the restraints that might um, prevent them from reaching something while they're strapped in in a high G uh, phase of flight. Or um, when, when they're on orbit, um, how do we have the accommodations to set up and let them have a little extra room to move around. So we, there are some really creative engineering solutions we've come up with on our program. So our, our seats are um, sort of reconfigurable for the different sizes of crew members. Uh, we have to be able to take a whole range of anthropometric dimensions of crew members. So anywhere from fifth percentile female to 95th percentile male, everything needs to accommodate all of the, that range of crew members. So it's, it's a really challenging problem, um, but I, I wish this uh, were visual so we could show you how we've done some of these things, um, but it's, it's a, a really cool problem to be a part of the solution. Yeah, and for me as an engineer, having built these trainers from the beginning, I mean, it's almost like looking at a blank canvas and putting the right switches in the right places and having discussions with every single engineer, every single subsystem, every single expert, avionics, uh, environmental control system, uh, abort systems and scenarios, trajectory folks, and being able to optimize all of that into this final painting that is the interior of our spacecraft. Yeah. And that's and where we get to geek out. <laughs> I will say it wasn't easy. And there are, I'm sure every subsystem is annoyed that this one switch didn't make it onto the final console. <laughs> um, and so there, it really is a true systems approach where you have to get feedback, input, buy-in from every single team who's a part of it to ultimately come up with this, this final design that's there. And I'll tell you, if, it, if we've done it right, which our team has validated every single as we go to get ready to go on the launch pad, you're only going to stare at that beautiful painting of a canvas. You're there just for the ride. Yeah, mm -hmm. hopefully you won't really have to touch much. You'll interact with the displays, um, but it's it should be a smooth, um, pretty, pretty boring ride if we've <laughs> done our job correctly. <laughs> I feel like no ride into space would ever be boring, but I, appreci <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. So if everything goes right, like you're just kind of, you're sitting back for the ride. If the you're spacecraft can sure. fly with zero people, like yeah. the experience would be the same with four exactly. people. Exactly. You, the, when the crew members are on board, they're there primarily to, um, to respond to an anomalous situation. Uh, so for, our nominal missions, which we hope every single one is a nominal mission, and we expect them to be. Um, the crew members will have to do a few things, uh, but for the most part, everything can be done by ground that they have to do nominally. Uh, and everything else that the crew needs to do on a crewed flight is to support the crew. So uh, for example, hygiene, 
Um, there are certain things that the crew member has to do on board to deal with hygiene situations, um, to food and water, uh, the seat belts, that, that sort of stuff the crew has to interact with. And so we need to make sure the crew can do it but um, the ground can't do it because the ground doesn't need to do it. Yeah. Um, so the, when the crew's on board, there are certain things that have to happen that don't have to happen on an uncrewed mission, uh, but we've made sure to design all those things so that the crew can do it themselves. So you talked about, you know, it's ultimately designed for that end user, an astronaut, mm -hmm. basically. How much are they involved in the process? Because we've announced the first crew members who yep, are going to yep. be flying on here. There's some NASA astronauts. There's also a Boeing astronaut mm -hmm. who used to be a NASA astronaut, commanded the last shuttle mission, Chris mm -hmm. Ferguson. How much are they kind of in the mix and also being a voice? You got all of those subsystems, you know, arguing for what's the most important thing. How important is the astronaut voice in all of this? Their experience um, when we hired a former astronaut, NASA astronaut Chris Ferguson over to Boeing has been tremendous, not only in the design of, of the vehicle, but to Selena and, and I as engineers and individuals getting to build the spaceship. Um, they were a part of every single meeting, giving their experience of riding on the space shuttle and um, other members of the astronaut corps to the NASA commercial crew cadre earlier in the program uh, that gave us feedback along the way. At the end of the day, our customers are NASA astronaut and getting their opinions and insight were instrumental. And for us as, as engineers to get to work with um, folks who have flown on a variety of space vehicles has been truly the best part of this job. Mm -hmm. And being right down the street from Johnson Space Center, at the Boeing building that's here in Houston uh, has made it really easy to collaborate with the astronauts. So the the original commercial crew cadre, the four of them who were announced a few years ago, um, like Tony said, they've been integral in pretty much every design meeting, decision, evaluation that we've done. Uh, and now that they've been assigned to specific crew members, uh, to specific missions, and we've um, gotten the ad additional crew members, those, those five who have been announced for our CFT and PCM-1 missions, um, I, I see them on a weekly basis. We're doing verification testing that they're a part of. Um, we, they're, our design is 99% done, but there are still a few tweaks that were, are being done, and the crew is a huge part of that. So just making, it's of course the, the NASA stakeholders, the NASA engineers and SMEs, um, subject matter experts, but it's, it's really the end user, the astronaut. We wanna make sure that we meet all the requirements, but also build a spacecraft that they wanna fly on and feel comfortable flying on. Well, now we're kind of at the fun part though, right? Like it's, it's all being built, but they're also training. So mm -hmm. how involved are you guys with the training? Training has started already. They are training. Um, I mentioned verification testing. They That is partially doubling as some of their training. They're getting really familiar with the systems, both um, off console systems in the Boeing mock-up trainer in Building 9 and the on console systems in our Boeing engineering simulator and Boeing, Boeing mission simulator, both at Boeing and Building 5 here at JSC on site. Um, so Boeing is kind of interesting the way we're doing mission operations, including training. Um, we are contracting NASA to do some of our mission operations for us. They, there's just a wealth of experience um, that they have here. So NASA FOD um, is helping out with our training and our mission operations. So that training has started. Um, they're using the Boeing mock-up trainer over in Building 9 to do, to do that training. 
Yeah, and when you look at the overall time frames for overall training, um, these vehicles, the Boeing Starliners, with its simplified approach, with its uh, more autonomy, we're going through every scenario in these training systems, but overall, the big focus is space station. So the less time you can train on our Starliner because of the simplicity of systems and the amount of innovation we've put in and the autonomy, that allows for more focus on that space station training and really expands the aperture of the amount of science mm. that we're doing on space station. And that's what it's all about, um, beginning with our astronauts, and of course ending with the great uh, innovations and insights we're learning from living and working in space. So what are some of kind of like the trainers that they're getting their hands on? Because I remember like back during shuttle, we had one that would go up and it was motion based and you could yeah. fly. It was almost like a video game. It was the greatest thing in the world. And I'm still so sad that we don't have it anymore. But like, what are some of the kind of like the different trainers that that they're working on? What what, yeah. what different functions do they serve? Um, a day in the life of Boeing training starts at the Boeing mock-up trainer, getting familiarized with the overall volumetric and and uh, human in the loop systems that you'll be in. So as we described earlier, walking into the spacecraft, where is every switch, where is every dial, where, what are all the switches behind you and the full scale trainer. Um, you basically put yourself in a mindset of you're on the launch pad at Space Launch Complex 41 on, on the Atlas V rocket, you're walking in the spacecraft, what does it look like? Um, we also go through a land landing scenario and even an off nominal land landing scenario where you're on the ground after um, a land landing and how do you get out through the top of the vehicle in, in a secondary approach, if you will, an off nominal approach for a land landing. And so that gives you an overall uh, physical environment understanding of the vehicle and the team has been tremendous in training both on the NASA side and the Boeing side to get that physical familiarization. And then we have our other trainer uh, of the software perspective. Yeah, so we, the, the Boeing mock-up trainer is our physical geometric, volumetric, show where everything is. We have um, a couple simulations where they actually learn to fly the vehicle and interact with the subsystem via the display. So we've got the Boeing engineering simulator, um, which is a quarter cockpit. So it's got the mm -hmm. commander and pilot and mission specialist one seats um, and all of the console displays and switches. Um, that's at the Boeing building here in Houston. We have a very similar um, but slightly higher fidelity mission mock-up environment in building five here at JSC. It's called the Boeing Mission Simulator. Um, and that's very similar to, similar to the BESS in that um, it, you interact with the displays, you fly simulations, uh, but you're more enclosed in the capsule. So it feels a little more like an actual mission would. But they're getting like simulated pictures yep. and so, stuff like so that. So it actually, both of those run off of real flight software oh, wow. um, and are driven by engineering models that are really high fidelity um, to, to model and simulate the ECLIS system, for example, environmental control and life support, um, as well as the EPS, the electrical power system. All of those systems are simulated um, and then it interacts with the flight software to give a very realistic mission for the crew members to train. And you can't beat the view out the window. A yeah. 4K rendition of back on Earth as you go into your mission and approach space yeah. station. Well that, yeah. And there are, a few, there are a few more. We've got tons of trainers. We, of course, that's a focus for any space mission, right? The astronauts need to find ways to train here on the ground. Um, and so we also have a few part test trainers, which are another way for them to interact with the um, simulation, the flight software, uh, but they're more virtual cockpit. So it's touchscreen, it's, it's not quite as tactile as the um, BESS and BMS, but they, they still get practice mm -hmm. with the, um, the flight software. And 
then of course there's the training for the ground team so we're going to have mission control here at jsc um, and we're doing full up simulations uh, with people in the bmt the boeing mock-up trainer the physical one doing tasks there people in the bms flying an actual vehicle um, mm. with people on the ground over the loops talking through a real mission scenario. Um, so we kind of, unfortunately, we don't have one big iron horse where we can do everything all at once, um, but we piece it together here on site and and can simulate every single part of a real mission. And that's what training is, such that when you're on the launch pad, nothing is a surprise in terms of how we've trained our astronauts to get ready to fly. And so you're covering every imaginable scenario. Everything. And that. the really great thing about being in Houston here at Johnson Space Center is that the Boeing mock-up trainer, the Boeing engineering simulator, the Boeing uh, motion simulator over in Building 5 are all co-located. So where an astronaut can go from Boeing Starliner training over to their mission and expedition training uh, there on the space station mock-ups as well. And I will say we don't know what we don't know. So I'm sure there are scenarios that they will encounter that we haven't trained. But the whole point of training is to train a representative set of scenarios that gives them the knowledge and the, the, the training to be able to respond to scenarios that we may not have covered in specific detail. Here's how you s respond exactly, but they should have the subsystem knowledge, the, the full system knowledge, and the knowledge of how to interact with the vehicle to be able to respond to anything that might arise. All right, so clearly a lot of work goes into getting the people, whether they're flying on the vehicle or controlling it from here ready, but I imagine just as much, if not more, goes into getting the vehicle ready. So after you're done designing doing all that stuff probably the more fun stuff again is the testing like what does it take this is a brand new spacecraft what does it take to go from the drawing board to putting that thing on top of a rocket and putting people in it oh it's been just a journey from from day one and it's o always starts off with what we call subcomponent testing so let's say you know our vehicle has solar arrays and batteries for power systems well how does the pa battery work? Can you test the battery in the space environment um, in a vacuum chamber and get all that data? Okay, mm -hmm. well, now the battery's done. Well, how does that connect over to the circuit board? And is, how does that work? How does that work when it's uh, connected over to the console? Okay, well, how does the console then connect to the structure? And how does the primary structure react so to the like skeleton of the 10 Starliner? million links in the Yeah. Chain. Bottom line, it's subsystem to integrated testing. And uh, NASA is working with us every single day, um, shoulder to shoulder. And what we get to do is present our design, test in the environment or, or the initial conditions and the box, if you will, of the environments that we're going to experience in space and during our missions. And NASA's right there with us, you know, giving us an A plus. Or if there's lessons learned, we, we learn and we get back there on the testing floor. And all of that, uh, all of those checklists, all of those verifications come together toward uh, final uh, flight readiness review, which I used to do on space shuttle, and and we look around the room, we look at every subsystem and every engineer, and say, are we go for flight? And that's that final uh, grade report to ensure that safety for our mission and crew. So you have all those different subs. Have you guys been part of any particular memorable test? Was there any system that you worked with when you know you get that A plus afterwards, and you're like, oh man, thank you because I've spent the last like. Mm -hmm three months of nights working and obsessing over that system and like how rewarding is it to kind of finally f see that kind of that link in the chain get locked in and then mm -hmm. you can move on to the next one yeah it's the ultimate final exam yeah and and 
multiple times, right? So you go through one test, you finish it, you wrap it up with a bow and you move on to the next one. Um, and they, they all build on top of each other. Uh, so some of, some of the tests that I've been involved in um, and are still ongoing are the integrated systems verification testing. So there's so many different parts of that. It's basically, it, it is part of that final exam but there are so many parts. Um, for example, we were we were down in at KSC Kennedy Space Center, uh, where our launch complex is, um, doing emergency pad egress testing. So mm. we did that recently, um, which is pretty fun. You get to go from the top of the pad um, down to the ground in a matter of seconds, um, testing those those parts of the system. How do they get down? How do they get down? Um, we've got a sort of slide wire system. It's not the basket system that um, they used in shuttle, but it's uh, um, kind of, you can think of it sort of like a zip line. Mm. Um, emergency use only, not for fun, yes. but it is pretty <laughs> fun when it's not an emergency. Um, so we, we use that to get down, but then we also, like I said, it's integrated systems. So um, we get down to the ground and then have the big MRAP um, armored vehicles that take the astronauts and the ground crew out of the blast danger zone. So we've got all of those piece parts together and we test to make sure that the operations and the systems work together to actually meet the requirements that we need to. And so that's pre-launch emergencies. We also do post-landing. Tony mentioned um, that we do egress scenarios in the Boeing mock-up trainer in Building 9. Um, we've also done a couple post-landing um, scenarios out in the desert at one of our landing sites. Um, so we didn't have a real vehicle landing, of course, um, but all the, all the teams that are part of the recovery operations were out there in our ATVs waiting to go um, to go recover the astronauts and the vehicle. So we've done all that testing and there, there are still more that will burn down as we get closer and closer to launch. Um, but each of those pieces is that, so we are sure that our vehicle and the operations that we've designed around our vehicle and the systems work together the way we expect. And so nothing is a surprise on the day of launch or the day of landing, just like Tony yeah. said. It's a team sport. And, you know, my biggest, or, you know, there's about three of us that call the Boeing mock-up trainer our baby. And it's because we, you know, we spent very long nights um, ensuring that every part of the vehicle is to the right fidelity to what the astronauts need uh, for use. For us, it's not also about verification, making sure the checklist is done. It's, I'm thinking about the astronaut and um, their, uh, their, their feeling and passion as they go into that vehicle, the understanding of how safe they're gonna feel in that vehicle. And so for us, it's not also, you know, checking the box, it's also just getting it right. And, mm -hmm. and that's that passion that we have, whether it's the day before Christmas or the day before New Year, um, because we need this capability, we need it now. And, and to be able to be a part of that and be able to be a part of history. And, you know, yeah, the, the, the checklist is a checklist, but to look back which you don't get to do very often yeah. at this amazing sprint to the launch pad and say, we've built a living monument in Building 9. We've built these simulators. We're out in the desert and at the launch pad. Um, it's the best time to do what we do right now, which is build a spaceship. And you know what, that, what you said about checking the boxes versus making sure yeah. um, the astronauts love it and are passionate about it and can use it? Um, it reminds me of my grad school systems engineering class, my professor would be so proud that I remember this, but the difference, difference between verification and validation. Verification is 
making sure that you meet the requirements that are set out. Validation is making sure that those requirements were the right ones to, to meet, that mm -hmm. they actually do what we need it to do for the end user and the full system. Um, so that, that's what we're doing, right? We're, we're checking the boxes as we go along and do these tests, but ultimately we're getting down the road to validation to make sure that, hey, this thing actually works the way we need it to. And my favorite when we were building the Boeing mock-up trainer is that Selena was basically my customer. And so it was verification, validation, and then staring at Selena and saying, are you okay with this? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's also, you know, a people perspective of how we, how we get it done. All right. So all of this work is going into it, and all of this ultimately gets us to the mission. So yeah. walk, walk us through the mission. We're, we're there. We're on the pad. What unfolds? Right. So we will be launching on the Atlas V rocket. So imagine yourself uh, at Kennedy Space Center. Um, our astronauts will actually be suiting up in the same rooms uh, from the shuttle era, right? I believe so. Yep. Yeah. So you're going to see elements of the past and the future all at the same time. We'll roll out to Space Launch Complex 41. Uh, a huge hats off to United Launch Alliance. They built the crew access tower in the middle of an amazing rocket manifest um, to their other customers. And so they'll go up uh, the crew access tower uh, to the Starliner, which will not have a fairing. It'll be the capsule on top of the mm. Atlas V mm -hmm. vehicle. You'll see it um, on the pad. And they'll go into uh, the CST-100 Starliner, very similar to Building 9 training. You'll see those five seats in there. Uh, for the first flight, there'll be three crew members and a complement of cargo. And in the future, there'll be those four crew members, including a fifth paying passenger, right? And so that'll be the look and feel that you'll see on the launch pad. You'll see um, our NASA uh, Mission Control Center that we've hired their tremendous expertise um, uh, going through their final checklist. Again, very similar sh shuttle with the crew on the pad. Um, the vehicle will be, um, you know, smoky and, and uh, with all the, the, the fuel and the and all of the power you need to launch. Um, we'll do our final countdowns. People like Selena and our engineers are gonna be a part of that poll and it's gonna be go for flight. A uh, typical mission will take about six hours to the International Space Station. Mm. So we talked about camping, it's basically a long road trip. Yeah. Um, going over to the International Space Station for an autonomous flight the entire way of the journey. The astronaut can take over just in case. Um, but to do a docking um, uh, uh, with, our, with the NASA docking system and the International Docking Adapter, um, pressure checks on each side, open the door, and start your expedition mission. Um, and then when you come back after your mission, uh, you'll get back into the Starliner, you'll come back uh, about a six, six and a half hour flight, if you will, back down to Earth to one of five landing locations in the western United States. Uh, as uh, Selena mentioned earlier, White Sands uh, has a tremendous history uh, with NASA and we're leveraging that uh, capability in that landing location. Six landing airbags on the bottom of the spacecraft are revealed as you come back through the atmosphere after the base heat shield is removed uh, for a nice soft landing in spacecraft terms. Mm -hmm. um, parachutes too. <laughs> in the that. western United States. <laughs> United States too, yeah. And um, the uh, team on the ground accesses uh, the crew capsule um, with a variety of ground uh, uh, safety and equipment uh, to be able to open the side hatch, the same door you came in when you were on the launch pad, and shake hands with those astronauts, get them back, and get them back to uh, Jonathan Space Center. Sounds pretty pretty quick and clean. Uh, quick and clean <laughs> is what we want, <laughs> and uh, we tr train for every scenario. But I'll tell you, it's a it's a testament to an amazing team. Yeah. Have you guys been to any of the landing sites yet? 
I have. Um, I, I mentioned the recovery testing that we've done. We did that out at White Sands. Um, the That's where I met you. Okay. Oh, is that? I was like, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was very hot. It's a yeah, small world yeah, in we were, space. We were probably yeah. dirty and wearing dingier clothes than we are now. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, so I, I was part of the, the White Sands recovery team um, during that ISVIT test. Uh, and I know parts of the team have been out to some of our other sites to, to do site certifications to make sure they're ready for our landings. So what did you think of the whites? For me, it was almost like we were walking on the moon, but really hot. Yeah, it, it's, it's so cool how different, different parts of our country is. And um, to, to be able to leverage that sort of environment, just flat, and hard as far as the eye can see. Um, it's it's really cool that we have that right here and we can we can utilize that. And that was, so we were on one of the old shuttle runways, which is so cool to see just the vast expanse. Um, and for our landing, since it's not a space plane, we don't need to have a runway to land. Um, we, it's really a, basically a four kilometer target, if you will. Um, and so your, we, the way we've chosen our landing sites is to make sure that there's a four kilometer target um, of not much there, mm -hmm. um, no dangers around. So we're not posing hazard to nearby cities yep. or anything like not that or other in operations. Backyard. Exactly. Um, so, so really it's, it's just cool to be there. And that was one of the first times where I really felt this is happening. This this is really real. Um, I know our the capsule that we were working with was basically a bouncy house, um, so that was the only thing that didn't feel real. But everything else, everybody was so serious, so committed, um, so so sure that we this is how we need to ensure, verify, validate everything that we're doing is is here when we get an opportunity to come to one of our landing sites with the whole team. Um, and see how it'll work on the real day. All right. Well, so all this testing's coming up. What's what's kind of the big stuff coming up for Starliner? I know there's some test flights coming up, and then you'll be operational. What's what's the really big stuff on the agenda coming up? We'll be launching an uncrewed uh, test vehicle, as uh, Selena has mentioned, uh, testing all the autonomous systems, autonomous rendezvous and docking um, with our uh, mission control centers and all of our engineers, uh, the final integration with our Atlas V rocket. And then after that, um, once we get into all the flight checks and all the flight readiness reviews out of that crewed test flight. Uncrewed. Uncrewed test flight, and we'll get all those checks down the line. That data is king. Mm -hmm. And that'll verify the safety of our vehicle um, from our design and our verifications on the ground and that'll get us ready for first flight with crewed astronauts with uh, Boeing astronaut Chris Ferguson and our two NASA crew members. And what that does is um, ensures our safety of our crew, which is our number one priority. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a big dress rehearsal almost. Yeah, and I will say bo both of those flights, OFT, our orbital flight test, and CFT, our crewed flight test, um, both of those are still part of our validation efforts. So we will not, PCM-1 is our first certified operational mission. Um, so until that flight, we're, we're still in the test phase, which is really kind of cool to be operationally testing. Um, it's, it's such an exciting time to be on the program, looking forward next year to those two flights um, and, and shortly thereafter PCM-1.
and then once so PCM, what does PCM stand for? Oh, what sorry. Does it oh, it's post-certification <laughs> mission. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry. So many acronyms, I, so little I time. I typed the whole thing without <laughs> actually saying it. Yeah. It's after certification. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's when you're just you're just flying crew members to the station for a regular mission. Yeah. So at right. that point, we're really NASA's our customer, our paying customer, um, and we'll be flying NASA astronauts to and from the International Sta Space Station. So before then, our OFT and CFT is still validating and certifying our design. Yep. And well, that's where the beginning of commercial spaceflight begins. If you look at what Boeing Starliner is and the NASA commercial crew program, NASA's purchased tickets on every single vehicle um, at, two f at a flight rate of two flights per year. Um, but as we mentioned earlier, four or five uh, astronaut crew members, that fifth paying passenger, fifth crew seat opportunity is available as we get into the later PCM flights or post-certification mission flights. And as we go forward, you're gonna start seeing new international partners, international uh, uh, partnerships based on the great work we've done on Space Station and new people flying and going to space and conducting experiments um, in microgravity that will be of benefit, not just to NASA and the International Space Station, but to countries and people of the world. And that is truly the, the most exciting part is that we are creating the foundation for a new low Earth orbit space economy. And how cool is it that Boeing, 100 years after building an aircraft and now connecting people around the world is gonna explore space and open that up to so many more future Boeing astronauts. Mm -hmm. And so if the person who won Mega Millions is listening, there's that fifth seat available. I was gonna say, hearing <laughs> that fifth seat, would you would you guys be up for taking the seat? One hundred percent. The amount of stuff and things we've learned with the Boeing mock-up trainer and just building it, absolutely, yeah. And and when you go into and you you talk to every engineer and you get to know all of the intricacies of the system, heck yeah, I would be on that flight. We are so committed to what we're doing. I'd I'd be on that flight. Yeah, and I. I don't know about Tony, but I've wanted to be an astronaut since I was really little. Um, so that's that's why I'm in this industry. That's why I love my job. Working with them is the next best thing. But one day I really do hope to fly on this vehicle that we're building right now. All right. Well, this has been amazing. Before I let you leave, like, what's the one thing you're, you want to see more than anything coming up? Like, what's the one thing that's got you most excited, whether it's a launch, a landing, just seeing that first view of it in space? What's... What do yes, you, what all do you, of it. All, just all of it? You I just, say I all just of it? <laughs> yeah, just working on this program for the past few years and seeing us get closer and closer and closer, I just can't wait to see it all come together. Each of these tests, those, those midterm exams that we were talking about, has brought us a little closer and felt more and more like the real thing, but I can't even imagine what it's going to feel like to be out at the launch pad on the launch day or out at the landing site on the landing day. Um, I can't wait to see Chris launch and come back. He's the person who hired me on, so I've worked really closely with him for these past three and a half years at Boeing. And it's just, I, I can't imagine a cooler scenario than being part of the mission and having worked so closely with the people on board, I, I just can't wait for it to actually happen. Yeah, I mean, my spark into human spaceflight started by seeing a space shuttle mission on a family vacation when I was 12. Uh, to work as an intern at Boeing on the space shuttle program and then full-time be in mission control when STS-135 landed and hearing Chris's voice. 
to be there when we were in the throes of um, the opportunity to build Starliner and having someone like Chris walk in and shake my hand and say, hey, I'm now part of your team, to building living monuments of trainers and to work with this world-class team with people who are truly living history. When we're on the launch pad, the emotions will be many, but more importantly, when we land and we tell the nation and really the world that um, NASA has always been here. NASA continues to inspire, and this is just one great giant leap forward into this new space economy. Boy, um, to be able to be a part of that and say, we helped build this, we built this here, is just the best thing in the world. And I can't wait for all of everyone listening to be able to be on, on Florida, see it on TV, see it around the world, and to spot the Starliner in space. It might inspire you to come join us. All right. Well, Selena, Tony, I'm going to let you get back to the midterms. I know you're excited mm -hmm. to graduate, and I can't wait to see more from Starliner. Thanks for spending a little bit of time and showing, telling us all what's going on and what's, what there is to look forward to. I really appreciate it. We'll see you on the launch pad. Thanks so much for having us. Another big thanks to Tony and Selena for coming on the show today. If you want to learn more about Starliner or the Commercial Crew program, you can always head online to nasa.gov slash commercial crew or head over to social media. You can find them on Facebook at NASA Commercial Crew or on Twitter at commercial underscore crew. And as always, if you have any ideas for podcasts or something you want to hear more about, head over to social media and use that hashtag AskNASA to submit your favorite idea. This podcast was recorded on November 1st, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, Kelly Humphreys, Kyle Herring, Steve Sisloff, Kerry Arnold, and Gary Jordan. And thanks again to Tony Casilleja and Selena Dopart for coming on the show. We will be back next week.